Hello and uh, Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt TV. Thank you for joining us on our first episode of 2018. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next uh, hour. Now, since 2016, we've interviewed over 200 guests, so we encourage you to check out our Vimeo uh, broadcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes and, our, and, and subscribe to our, to, our, to our show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He is the founder and CEO of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and a regular contributor to Harvard, Harvard Business Review and ZDNet. You can follow Ray on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, man. This is awesome, Vala. I'm here with my co-host, Vala Afshar, one of the top CIO, CMO influencers of the world, a digital transformation expert himself, and more importantly, a fellow author. Um, but we are here actually talking about what's next, what's hot, and we've got some awesome guests to kick off 2018. Vala, who do we have right now? Who's up first? It's our privilege to start 2018 with an extraordinary entrepreneur, technologist, and CEO, Frederick Laluluyo, President and CEO of Aura Technologies. Uh, hey, how Frederick, are you? Frederick is an entrepreneur at heart, uh, founded his first company at age 23. With over 20 years uh, of uh, leadership experience in the EPM sector, Fred has built his career focusing on providing solutions that help organizations worldwide achieve financial and business excellence. Prior to his current role as CEO, Fred was the CEO of Anaplan, which he grew from 20 to 650 employees with over 1 billion valuation. Prior to that, he was a senior vice president GM at SAP Applications and many other executive roles. Uh, you can follow Fred on Twitter at F-L-A-L-U-Y-A-U-X. Welcome, Fred, to Disrupt TV. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I need to. When you say it like this, I realize I have to change my last name. It doesn't work. <laughs> That's my resolution for the year. Just change my last name. How do you pronounce it? Laluya, right? Laluya. 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 If we go there, we got to spend 10 minutes on this. Hey, I'm actually Wong. Everyone pronounces it Wang. So, I, you know, I, I'm still working on that. I got all these other folks. So, even a simple name gets butchered. So, <laughs> but, uh, Tell but me. hey. Uh, tell us a little mm -hmm. about ERA, right? You jumped to this company. Uh, you got yeah. really excited about it. I think I met you in London about it. I met you in Paris about it. I met you somewhere else. You're talking about this whole concept of self-driving enterprises. Um, and I think a lot of people are trying to figure out, what is it? What does that mean? And let's start sure. there because there's a lot of implications to other technology trends that are happening big in 2018. Yeah, I think when, when you and I talked, we, we, we talked uh, maybe a year and a half ago in London, I was all about, you know, the, the, the whole move was based on the belief that we're, we're moving from 40 years of transaction automations to what I call the new era of cognitive automation, automating decisions, how they're being made, how they're being executed. And that's the premise of, of era. That's the premise of, of the self-driving enterprise. Um, to do that, you have to think about different types of technology architecture uh, and really bring together multiple pieces of functionality that in the old world or current world still sit in, uh, in, in, in different uh, uh, pockets, if you want. So we're bringing all that together, a fresh new look at it. And the whole idea is, again, to automate how decisions are being made in, uh, and, uh, and executed in the enterprise. Why, why is it important for business leaders to think about this notion of self-driving self -driving enterprise. Is it 
Is it that we live in an age of a connected customer, hyper-connected knowledge-sharing economy, so speed is the new currency? What's the, what's the catalyst behind this, this self-drive enterprise notion? You know, I'll try to, to make it really real with all the conversations we're, we're having around the world right now. Um, we're talking to large pharma company telling us, hey, we have $10 billion right now stuck in inventory. We have 52 different SAP systems. We have uh, so many, uh, you know, analytics tools and uh, uh, optimizers. We got everything that's to, uh, available in the market, and we cannot break that uh, uh, that 10 billion. And we need to go from number to uh, uh, you know much smaller number uh, within a certain period of time. And we need to rethink about um, you know the, the the whole architecture of systems. Um, Providing data to the users, more data to the to our planners, just doesn't cut it anymore. The complexity of the decisions that have to be made is too high. The speed at which decisions have to be made is too high. And the traditional tools just don't cut it anymore. The, the, the self-driving is really a concept, right? The idea of a self-driving, it's a system that's real time and always on, connected outside and in, that's thinking, and that's autonomous. So it's really... Um, one of our customers called this the exoskeleton, right? It's the uh, it's the, the system that really does a lot of the work for you in real time with very smart agents and the ability to take these actions autonomously. So it's really getting through a new a new frontiers. I mean, the 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 ideas of of plugging a bunch of analytical applications on top of multiple ERPs with even though if you think about the data lakes and all those great technologies today, it's just not cutting it anymore. Wow. Now that takes us to concept that we keep bumping into, especially when we're dealing with organizations that are trying to do more with the information and insights that they have. And one of that concept is, is really about, you know, information is everywhere, right? It's ambient. Um, it's required to enable smarter and faster decisions. It's being orchestrated across all different like legacy systems, cloud systems, mm -hmm. connection points, IoT, fog, and the edge. Uh, and we're pulling all that together and then we want to do something with it. We call this uh, infinite ambient orchestration, but lots of companies can't do it. What's the missing glue? What do they have to do to get there? Because all the information is out there, but they can't seem to use it, put it together, and take an action against it. Super simple. In, my, in our view, right, at ERA, is this cognitive data layer. Basically, you have access to all this data, but it still remains in the different silos. You may bring into the same spot, into the same place. If it doesn't have this native uh, uh, understanding of the context of the data, what the data actually means, then you just have data. And then to analyze it, you're gonna plug you know, analytical applications, but you don't have the context. What you really need is the context, is the understanding of the data. And we've, we've cracked that nut. A little bit like the way you know Google cracked the nut of, of search, right? By by right. crawling the websites and bring all this data into their servers, indexing, massaging, harmonizing, indexing all the data. We're doing the same thing with the transactional data. We, we bring in billions of records from all the different ERPs when the data is not re, you know uh, leveraged, and then we harmonize it, and when it becomes available on the fly, anytime you need to do a small query. So. There is, there is a different type of architecture, a different way to think about when to do the work. Um, and, and, and I think this, this harmonized cognitive data layer is what a lot of companies are missing today. Uh, Fred, Ray and I in the last month, uh, believe it or not, had the uh, good fortune of interviewing 
couple of futurists. One was Vinton Cerf, uh, the inventor of TCP IP and the founding father of the internet. And uh, Peter Schwartz, uh, who's a futurist uh, at Salesforce. And he worked with Steven Spielberg on Minority Report and all these other futuristic movies. Yeah. Ray and I both asked uh, these two incredible thought leaders their, their point of view in terms of AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, and where they see the market to this year, 2018. We asked both of them to do some myth busting in terms of maybe helping us better understand general AI versus you know, where we are today, or when we talk about autonomous vehicle level one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. So, so we'll ask you, you know, a serial entrepreneur and, and obviously someone who's deep in the trenches of AI with your current company, what are your thoughts in terms of where the market's going the next 12 months and, and advice to other CEOs? Uh, I, I know some that are ignoring and some that are betting the farm on AI and, and the spectrum is literally that wide. So your, your advice to them as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll put the answers in, in two parts. You mentioned the, uh, the autonomous vehicle, you know, um, we have the same analogy, right? So if you think about what makes a self-driving enterprise, uh, four different steps. The first one is having this cognitive data, having the ability to understand your business in real time across all the, its different facets and complexity. So that's level one, right? You get to that real time understanding of your business operations, that's level one, that is real. Then you get to uh, uh, real-time recommendations. This agents, this, this cognitive brain is now running around all the data and doing the work that analysts would do, that planners would do. Um, and, and that is also a reality today. AI works in, in that field very well. We can actually map how decisions are being made and automate that process. The third level is prediction, and that's not new. I mean, statistical forecasting, predictive uh, analytics has been out there forever. The, the critical uh, blocking point was um, a harmonized data set that allows you with time series to run those predictions. So level one, level two, level three, that's the reality today. Very great, so a lot of great companies are, are using this technology for that. Where it gets interesting is level four, which we call ACT. It's the ability to trust the system to the point where you allow your AI, your, your cognitive uh, uh, information to actually uh, make a decision and act on it autonomously. So you remove the human out of the equation. On that level, we're literally working on our first few pilots uh, on some pretty, pretty complex uh, uh, projects uh, in uh, CPG, in pharma. And the question that the customers are asking us is saying, look, as I said, I touched on before, uh, providing more data and more tools to our users doesn't cut it anymore. We need to offload some of this work. and the beauty of an AI is to actually, you bring your context, uh, uh, the, your, your usage data with the context uh, of the data that you're, you're working on, and you can start measuring the impact of the decisions over time. Mm -hmm. So these decisions of, of reassigning inventory from this place to that place is made that way with that impact uh, when your inventory levels are like this. And you start building that knowledge over time and you have what we call the cognitive decision board, which you can now literally visually represent how decisions are being made, where, for what impact. And, and that's, that's uh, really where we're going. We're starting to, to work that with the most advanced customers. And that's just absolutely fascinating topic. So it's a reality. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, you said 12 to 18 months, we will be there uh, sooner than that. Not mainstream, but the pioneers are clearly going there right now. As far as advice for other CEOs, I would say it depends what you do. In our field, 
there is literally a blockage, right? Everybody who works in a big company and is messaging data and trying to make decisions will tell you, give me something that does the work for me intelligently. And in which case there's no other way to use data and new architecture and, and, and machine learning and AI and LP and all this great technology. Um, and if you don't need it, then maybe it's not the right place to push for. But for us in our field, it's the next revolution. It's the next breakthrough. Just data modeling is not going to cut it anymore. You know, it sounds like companies that aren't prepared for machine learning or AI or companies that haven't actually started to make those investments may potentially fall behind um, yeah. in the next 24, 36 months. These business extinction events, kind of known as Kodak moments, are kind of fun, right? And so you want to you want to get not not be in that scenario. Um, and so Just add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. <laughs> add cryptocurrency, you'll be fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> get your risk with cryptocurrency. But, um, but, but the interesting thing that we're seeing right now is, is this notion of humans and automation and AI working together. And, and that's a concept that Alan Leposky and our team, and we've been all talking about for a while called augmented humanity, uh, which is really being able to learn as computers are learning from the false positives, they're learning from how we do things and how we work. Yeah. When we look at that future of work, um, how do you see that training process where we're working with the machines and the machines are helping us make better decisions, but they're also helping us prevent issues from happening or helping to predict things or take guesses on predictions to identify scenarios and forecasting and planning in ways that we would never mm -hmm. seen before. Is that, does that take a while to do once we get these systems running and training or is that something we can do right away on day one? Yeah. So you and I are talking about the future of work again. Uh, <laughs> it's like our theme of our lives here, years of talking about this. But there's really uh, a fundamental shift that's happening in the future of work. I actually believe that for the first time, right, we've talked about it a lot, evolution. But for the first time, I, I can see, I can visualize how my kids will look at me as the generation of folks who spend their life working on laptops. The same way I look at my father's generation as the generation of guys working with pen, pen and paper and, and doing, you know, drinking whiskey in meetings. And I think completely crazy. Now, it's really scary as a thought, right? Because, because my kids would be looking at my laptop like an ancient uh, device. Um, and and it's, it's very hard as a generational thing to think that, hey, I'm going to be completely obsolete if I continue like this. But it's just the reality. And for the first time, I can see that happening where it's not just augmenting uh, how human work is literally replacing some of the work we're doing. I always say I, I have a car today that's the same model than the one I had 20 years ago, but the car is much better. I got a lot more features. I got GPS, but driving is still driving. And if you look at the work of an operator in a big company or a small company, the work hasn't really changed. It's faster. We've got more tools. The work is the same. This will change the work the same way sitting in a Tesla changes your, your, your driving experience altogether. And now you think about networks of those cars and you don't need traffic lights anymore and you don't need stop signs anymore. And that's the revolution that is, uh, uh, you know, right there uh, in front of us. And it's not going to take a long time. We are, you know, this one will come much faster than we ever think. And, you know, it's a very serious issue. It's a very... Uh, uh, we have to put a lot of thought about how we manage this. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you're watching uh, Consumer Electronics Show, 
I just tweeted uh, GM's announcement that next year they're going to introduce a car with no steering wheel, no, no, no pedals. Yeah. Uh, and they, you see the interior, and it's like you're sitting behind a desk with a, with a, with a, you know, with a, with a monster iPad in the center. <laughs> but, uh, and we're, we're building software that will have no UI anymore. I mean, the UI that I have on my phone right now for ERA is a voice. I mean, it's not the only way to communicate with ERA, but it's literally, I'm, I have a dialogue with the application. I'm answering questions. ERA is learning from my answers. And, and that's a completely new way to think about it. The ROI, right? We have been in this industry for a long time. When we look at the project, and that really does your question too, right? Where we need to justify an ROI within a certain number of months and hard numbers. We do all of that because the applications that we're replacing, we can quantify the value. Um, but the reality is the, the ROI is do it or you're dead. Uh, and in some industries, this is literally is we have to do it. I don't know how long it will take for the system to learn and build that exoskeleton for your planners or your sales rep. I don't know. But the CIOs we're talking to, the CEOs we're talking to, they understand they have to start that journey because if the competition does it before them, they're out of business. Think about having your sales force, your planning team, your supply chain, 24-7, analyzing every single bit of data, internal and external, and being able to make decisions. That, you know, there's no choice. The world's going there. That's amazing. Now you can see I'm a bit passionate about this. But. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was just going to say, I mean, you just mentioned natural language processing, uh, you know, machine learn, that learning. Uh, uh, Ray and I spoke to Walt Mosper a couple of months ago, and he brought, talked to us about ambient computing and the fact that you're using voice UI to talk to enterprise application and gain insights. It's like we're living uh, Blade Runner 2049 or starting to yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 it's scary. It's exciting and scary at the same time. Absolutely. So as a, as a CEO, uh, as a startup CEO, and you know, Venture Scanner, Fred, is tracking right now 2,028 startups just in the AI space that have fetched $27 billion uh, in the last couple of years. And that number, every time I log on a week later, it's 2,030, 40, 50. Uh, so, so how hard is it to acquire talent? How hard is it to get funding? It seems like maybe not as hard as perhaps in the past. And then are there opportunities to continue to pursue big ideas in what may feel like a saturated space, although you know those 2,000 are spread across, I think, 14, 15 categories from smart robotics to deep learning and so on and so forth. So your thoughts in terms of just the landscape, startup landscape from your point of view? I think like every new wave and what I call personally this cognitive automation, I'm just looking at what I know, which is the enterprise world, right? Enterprise software world. Um, every new wave of technology has given birth to a new leader, a new serious, strong category, you know, leader. We're right now building another category. We've done that before. Um, and I think VCs, the VC community understands that. And they want to be with that winner. So I think the excitement that you see right now in the VC community is the fact that there is a new wave. And we know that this wave will give birth to a new leader and a set of leaders. And there is a lot of excitement there. Um, I think you really have two types, and I'm lucky enough to be an investor in some companies as well. I think that there is a little bit of a sprinkling the AI word everywhere, and that's uh, not going to get yeah. too very far because I think people see it through that. Sure. Um, you know, and you go like, what did you really do? And there's not much. And then there is the legit solutions, and those legit solutions 
they will take time to mature. I mean, you know, when months came out and said, I'm going to build a self-driving car, we didn't say, here it is, it's working in every condition. When we come up and we say we're building a self-technology that enables self-driving enterprise, we're not saying it's all there. Right. But there is enough appetite in the market, right? Customers are there. Big companies are moving very fast. And if you just miss that, if you don't understand the power of, of this technology, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you to get, you know, a penny of funding uh, wow. if you are legit Weird. about it. Now, the recruiting part, yeah, it's, uh, it's a pain in the butt. It's difficult. <laughs> but you have to have a very crisp, you have to have a very crisp vision. Um, you have to have traction. And then the whole point about, about our company, I can only talk about us from this one, is, you know, if you're passionate about enterprise software and if you're passionate about this vision, then you need to come and work with us. I can't so compete with, you're I can't, you're uh, we're hiring yeah. hundreds of people, but I cannot compete with the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. So I need to, I need to make sure that the talent who wants to express to, you know, themselves in that space, yeah. find a good home. So you have to be very focused on, how, on, on, on who you are if you want to find good talent. We are live here with Fred Lalou. He is the president and CEO of Era Technology, serial entrepreneur, enterprise software veteran. You can follow him on Twitter at F-L-A-L-U-Y-A-U-X and of course at Era underscore tech. So you can track him down there. So hey, thanks a lot for being on the show, being live from Paris and uh, have a great night. So Thank you guys, appreciate it. Thank you, Fred. Cool. Now we've got an upcoming guest. This is going to be great. We're getting a sneak preview of something really hot and uh, live from another fun remote location in Breckenridge. Who do we have, Bala? Uh, we're very lucky to have uh, author of a new book. We have Chris Bradley's partner at McKenzie, leader in the strategy practice. He's a co-author of a new book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, uh, People, Probabilities, and big moves to beat the odds. So I'm, I'm, we're going to really dig deep into the new book. Uh, Chris helps major institutions undergo strategic transformation to navigate, navigate large-scale shifts in their environment. He connects high-level conceptual thinking to practical uh, shop floor improvements. Uh, his client expertise spans retail, mining, media, apparel, food, beverage, rail, telecommunications. I know he looks young, uh, but he has expertise across all of this, which is amazing. He's developed McKenzie's 10 timeless test strategy. Chris is the global leader of the firm's work in business unit strategy, where he uh, spearheads the development and modernization of McKenzie's tools and capabilities. He's also a joint lead faculty of the strategy program in the McKenzie Academy, an online executive education initiative launched recently. So welcome to Disrupt TV, Chris, and congratulations on your new book. Thanks, Bella. Wow, yes. It's being published uh, by Wiley on February 13th, 2018, um, and also with some of your other partners, Martin and Sven, so who else I think I've met before. So lots of books on strategy everywhere. They're collecting dust all over the place. They got case studies, frameworks, examples. <laughs> you know that. I know that. We see those binders of stuff. They're all signed, and they're sitting there looking at you. What is different about strategy behind the hockey stick? Well, that's a good question because we set out to write a, a business book that was very, very different because th those business books gathered dust on our shelves too. I'll tell you, there's two big differences here and there's two stories we collide in this book. The first story is about getting away from small scale case studies and kind of storytelling and getting into big data and empirics. And what, what does the data from thousands of companies tell us about what really works for strategy? The surprising answer to that then crashes into the other side of our story, which is 
what's strategy like in the real world of the strategy room, which is crowded with ego. It's crowded with uh, conflicting incentives. It's, it's crowded with uh, misinformation, misaligned, misaligned interests, etc. So in this book, what we do is we take that empirical reality of strategy, which says you need to make big moves and you need to get with the trend in order to beat the odds. And we compare that to the world of real corporate strategy, which is more about inertia than anything else, and then propose a path forward of how we're going to make those big moves really happen. So people aren't swinging around, my data is bigger than your data? No, I'm just kidding. We do have a lot of data. So there's no question about that. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's really different than the, the past form yes. of writing a business book, which to kind of have a theory or a framework. We don't want any more of those. We just want to know what's real and what works. Got it. And so, we want that to be relevant and real inside the actual strategy experience of the executives we work with. And you've got the quant now to talk about it, which is very different than the conjecture that we've had in the past. So got it. Yes. So the quant was, uh, you know, we, we were, because McKinsey has quite a large database of companies, we we're able to really mine that very effectively. So taking about two and a half thousand companies and over a 10 year period kind of asking, okay, which of those companies produced extraordinary kind of leaps in performance and which didn't, and then use kind of very basic machine learning algorithms to kind of figure out, okay, what differentiated the people with great odds from those who had, who had poor odds. Sure. I think maybe one time I did receive a tweet from Ray where he said his data button was bigger than mine. But anyway, we won't talk about that on the show. <laughs> Speaking of Twitter and so, can you talk about, or social, can you talk about the social side of strategy? Not, not the quantitative big data right. and advanced analytics, but the social side. Well, many business books built around frameworks or theories kind of pretend that you're in this business school world of strategy, where as long as you have the right five forces framework, you can kind of crack the strategy and as though we're all living in this machine world. But of course, there's a lot going on in the strategy process, isn't there? When you walk into the strategy room, it's crowded with a lot of things. There's people trying to get ahead in their careers. They're trying to justify past investment. They're trying to negotiate their next year's budget. They're trying to look good in front of their boss. They're trying to flatter their performance, all sorts of things. And even if these things are subconscious, but we're not at all saying that people are bad or wrong. We're just saying there's a hell of a lot going on inside the strategy room. And that's what we call the social side of strategy. What the, the outcome of the social side of strategy is long decks and lots of data and lots of analysis and yes, appendix on page 42 and all these things. But actually the, re, the, the actual outcome is inertia. And that's because uh, resources are sticky inside of companies and the, the social side of strategy keeps them that way because existing power bases hold the resources because it's always riskier to keep things, it, apologies, it's less risky to keep things the way they were, et cetera, et cetera. So we've kind of, put a bucket term around all this stuff going on in the strategy room. We call that the social side of strategy. And when we talk to executives about this stuff, and uh, because we've been developing this book for so long, we've managed to speak to quite a lot of them. It's that side. They go, hey, no one's talking to us about that. That's mm -hmm. kind of, that. that's to us, that's actually our real challenge. How do I get uh, uh, Jane Doe over here to actually want to take her business in a different direction and actually maybe give up some of her things that she had uh, pride in from the past. And so they're, they're actually more the real bread and butter issues. Uh, that we're confronting here. How, how quickly, sorry, how quickly can you assess a company culture in order for you to know it's going to be a bumpy social side of strategy versus perhaps a, a less frictionless uh, pursuit of transformation of any kind? So when I, when I start with a new client, I always say, please don't send me any of your strategy decks. Just tell me where your best talent went last year, where your discretionary OPEX went next year, and how much of a CapEx budget moved, and then I'll actually tell you your strategy. So I say, I want to be more like the Martian. I can't read your packs. They don't make any sense to me. 
Um, so, the, but if we had one index, it would be resource movement. It would be the, the degree to which resource allocation five years ago, whether it's capital deployment, whether it's OPEX, discretionary OPEX or, or talent, how it looks different than it did in the past and whether that resource deployment is happening before the signal or after the signal. So it's easy to redeploy resources when you're going broke. Yeah. But the people who are able to actually get in ahead and index into the trend ahead of time. That's to me the number one movement. So I'll, I'll want to look at what their capital budget looked like five years ago versus what it looks like today and that will give me a sense of what's going on. Smart. Smart. Well, hey, let's talk graphs, man. This thing is all about curves and sticks and what's happening. So how do you distinguish between a, a real hockey stick and a power curve? These are some of the things that you ask in here and it's things that people have like seen all the time. Right? Everyone's like, oh, I got a hockey stick projection. It's going to grow like this. And everyone's yeah. like, oh yeah, 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 it's real. But nobody has any data behind it. What do you do no. about that? So, well, everyone walks into the strategy room with a hockey stick. So that's why we make this kind of playful idea of what's beyond the hockey stick and what's the real hockey stick. There's kind of two types of graphs in our book. There's a whole bunch of cartoons that kind of talk to the social side of strategy. And then there's our kind of hardcore data charts. The core of our data charts, this concept called the power curve, which is if we take the performance and we measure performance by economic profit, which is the profit you have left over after you've paid your cost of capital. Um, if you take the performance of pretty well every large non-financial company in the world, and you plot them in a, in a line in order, you get this very distinctive chart called the power curve. And the power curve has three very clear segments to it. It has the middle 60%, the middle three quintiles, which pretty well on zero economic profit the whole way. So those guys are pretty well living the lives of the economics textbook where economic profit in equilibrium will kind of tend to zero. Mm. Then you've got two other interesting groups. The top quintile take all the money. So they average 1.4 billion economic profit per year. Um, and then the bottom quintile uh, where there's kind of capital stuck in bad places and they, they average about 700 million negative economic profit a year. Yep. You get this radical distribution. And the, the empirical question we asked in our book was, hey, does a company ever go from that middle bit mm -hmm. and does it ever jump to the top? And so we followed the, that cohort over a 10 year period and said, well, actually, companies do actually jump from the middle to the top, but it only happens to one in 12 companies. Wow. So the next question, of course, is, well, how, how do I know if I'm going to be one of those one in 12 companies or not? And that was kind of the, that's the, the machine learning question, so to speak. But and it turns out we're, oh, go, go, ahead. go ahead, Ray. I was but you also talk about the need for the social dynamics and the leadership to get them there, right? Because there's, there's, a, there's a human factor that got them there as well, not just the fact that they were stuck in that situation. If, if that's I right. From the book. So, well, we remember we talked about there's two stories in our book. One, you, if you were to use the language of behavioral economist, you'd say one is called the outside view, which is where all this big data comes from. Mm. It's calibrated, it's probabilistic, it's based on the real odds, not just what you think or your own view of your own data. And then you have the inside view, which is really detailed, really complex, but often wrong because it actually misses the, the unknown unknown, so to speak. <laughs> so, following this outside view in, you, you come up with, well, what, what makes some companies be one of those one in 12? And the answer is, well, you gotta have a great endowment, you gotta start, it helps if you're big, it helps if you've got healthy R&D, it helps if you've got huge balance sheet capacity. Um, then you've got to, then there's two other things that you have to have on your side that radically change your odds of, of moving up the power curve. And that is uh, whether you're on trend or not. So have you got trends at your back or have you got headwinds? And the two types of trends we measure are geographic trends, like have you got above normal GDP growth in your geographic distribution 
um, and industry trend? Are you in an industry that itself is moving up the power curve? And that explains kind of about 40% of it. And then the next thing you have is big moves and there's five big moves. And this is where the social side really kicks in because if you want to just keep doing what you're doing and keep stuck in your inertia, you're not going to be indexing to that trend and you're not going to be making the kind of radical big moves that it takes to actually beat the odds. Got it. Got it. So, so I want to learn more about the big moves. And so you said there's five bold big moves that at least how I interpret it, that gets yeah. uh, a, a, a company to the you know, upper quartile of the power curve. My question is one, what, give me some examples of, big bold moves and, and the other question is if you don't make those moves do you stay in the middle quartile or do you over time end up you know falling into the lower end because it looks like you said one in 12 so less than 10 percent yeah. have uh have executed on big moves in order to you know make the jump so not right. so, either stay or fall behind right so so there's five big moves um and the, the cool thing is because we've it's based on real data you can actually benchmark your company on not just how big you say your strategy is, but what percentile you're actually in on each of these big moves. And those big moves are programmatic M&A, they are resource reallocation, they are uh, capital growth, uh, differentiation improvement as measured by your gross margin, and productivity improvement. And some people say, well, isn't it interesting you're talking about productivity improvement, isn't this a strategy book? And this is where the calibration comes in because if you're like 70% of companies and you're just keeping up with the Joneses, and doing the everyday productivity improvement programs, that doesn't do anything to move you up the curve. But if you can consistently improve your productivity faster than 70% of the rest of the world relative to their industry, guess what? It gives you a strategic edge to move up the power curve. And so uh, your operating model, your operating system can actually become part of your strategic formula. The other interesting one is M&A because everyone says, oh, M&A destroys value, et cetera. This is absolute rubbish. The um, actually, because that's based on event studies and event studies only capture really big announceable things, but something like 70% of M&A is not announced. Um, all we did was say, hey, forget what everyone's saying there. Let's look at which companies go up the power curve and which ones don't. Companies that go up the power curve execute what we call programmatic M&A. And that means they're doing two or three deals a year and none of those deals is worth more than 30% of the company. So they're taking small bite, consistent diet of acquisitions. Um, by the way, divestiture counts just as much as acquisition. So it's all about movement, remember? Um, whereas the worst thing you can do is organic. And the second worst thing you can do is big bang M&A, which is trying to do it all in one go. Mm -hmm. So companies that have, you know, so we were able to empirically kind of be able to say to a CEO, hey, if you don't have that steady diet of acquisitions, um, it might not be a bad thing, but it means it's less likely that you're going to beat the odds for your industry. Wow. And does that first lever affect the other four levers? There's lots. I mean, the model, the, the model's kind of non-linear. The, the model's kind of non-linear. And for example, if you're in a bad industry, doubling down on capital is a really bad idea. That tends to be quite a, you know, sure. but on the whole, these, for these big moves, more is better. So wow. in general, they shift your risk to the right they, and they make the upside better and the downside lower. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing that big and bold moves is actually the least risky path to your strategy when you actually look at over. And that's because the world is more violent and change is more radical than people think it does. So the status quo is always more dangerous than you think when you're looking from its inside view from up close. 
Ah, so and, and one of the things that we're actually saying, one of the predictions we have for 2018 and beyond is, is the impact of the U.S. tax code changes. We're actually seeing anywhere between 357 billion and 420 billion coming back into the U.S. on DFI. And the return on capital is definitely going to be one of those questions. I mean, you're just at the right time. These folks who haven't been doing M&A on a programmatic basis are going to be thinking about how to get there. Now, there's a second stat that's actually kind of interesting. And Val and I have probably seen Clay Christensen at least four times in the past 12 months. And he has this one chart all the time that pops up and it's like and I finally was paying attention because I actually wasn't on my phone and the battery like, ran out and my battery <laughs> ran out so since 1950 right it shows you reinvestment of profits right and it was 50% in R&D in the 50s and 50% to dividends today it was like less than 1% on R&D and the rest was stock buybacks and dividends is there anything in the book and any empirical data that shows um, what the impact is for those who invest in R&D versus those who went to stock buybacks and dividends that's really good. But in fact, empirically, what we found is R&D is really good if it was the previous CEO who did it because it's such a long lead time. So that's why uh, you're past R&D. <laughs> that's why nobody kind of, does it. Yeah, kind of part of your endowment. True, uh, but at, at our corporate finance practice has noticed this lowering rate of reinvestment and this increasing timidity. Um, and this book about a lot of it's about boldness and kind of undoing some of that. Um, and that actually, the, as I said before, the, the idea that big moves, bold moves, getting you ahead of the trend, moving first, actually ends up being the least risky approach. And that's why I think you see uh, the companies that kind of did jump up the power curve, did do radical moves. They didn't, they weren't, they weren't the 1% on R&D type crowd. Tell us about the hockey stick. What is it? Well, the hockey stick is the most, is the most dreaded chart in strategy, but it, it's got an even uglier cousin called the hairy back. Let me tell you about both. So the hockey stick is your typical projection, which says, oh, it's all going to be great in the future. But of course, next year, I just need to look, you know, there's a bit, you know, and that's because I don't know if you've ever been into a company and kind of gotten the bottom drawer out and seen their past three year plans, but they're usually gathering dust. No one ever looks at them again um, because ultimately they're playing a game for year one budget. They're, they're negotiating for year one budget. When you take all of these three or these five year plans and actually sketch them in sequential order and versus what, what really happens, you get the ugliest chart in strategy called the hairy back. And it kind of has what really happened and then all the successive hockey stick project, projections going off it. And um, we, when, when, I, when I, we talk to our clients about this, they all kind of like sheepishly look at us and they go, yeah, we know we've got the hairy back. The, the point is though, these are not stupid people. They're not badly intentioned people. They have enormous resources. So there's actually something really interesting going on to create these hairy backs. And on one hand, it's all the worst parts of the human brain coming together. So it's being excessively confident about the world and therefore people's baselines being too high. Hey, everything's great. Look, we're just going to continue to trend. Um, and so, but being excessively timid about how big your plans need to be. So when you get overconfidence on your baseline and timidity yeah. on your plans, you get, you get hairy back. We say, do, no, do something different this time. Be really, really clear-eyed about how radically the world's changing and how digitization and all these trends are really eating away your profit pool. And be realistic about what market forces are really doing to your baseline. And then whatever your aspiration is, go, okay, well, that's how big a plan I need. So let's be clear-eyed about our baseline and really bold and big about our plans rather, rather than the other way around. And that's how we're going to get out of this kind of hairy back problem. 
<laughs> Chris, this has been wonderful. It's been fascinating. I actually do want to invite you to come speak at our conference. We do 300 executives at the Half Moon Bay Ritz, uh, October 22nd to 25th uh, in San Francisco. If you can hold those dates, we'll get back to you. Um, it's a strategy event. Uh, we're talking about jumpstarting growth, and I think this is a, a great topic to talk. For those of you who haven't checked it out, pre-order the book. February 13th, 2018. You can get it on Amazon. You can check it out on the site. It's published by Wiley. We're here with Chris Bradley, who doesn't have a Twitter handle, but he's a partner in no. He's partner at McKinsey and co-author of this new book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick. Thank you for being on the show and hope to see you in October. So Thank you, Chris. thanks for having me. Terrific. Wow. That was uh, that was amazing insight. That was that was uh, it's, here first. Here first on the show. Thank you use books. I'm waiting for Doug to announce his uh, new book, but we'll, 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 we'll let him get to that. Uh, our, uh, this is our cleanup hitter spot, uh, which Doug is familiar with. We have uh, Doug Henshin, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Uh, Doug is focusing, has always focused on, on data-driven decision-making. Doug's data decision research examines how organizations employ data analysis to reimagine their business models and gain a deeper understanding of their customers. A lot of what we just talked about with our last two guests. You can follow Doug on Twitter at D-H-E-N-S-C-H-E-N. Welcome back, Doug, and Happy New Year to uh, Disrupt TV. Busy writing reports to write books. No. <laughs> hey, Sorry about that. I, I know the hey, CEO yeah, yeah. of Constellation. I can put in a good word for you. Let me know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. No, hey, you know, Doug, you know, it's 2018, right? We sat down in 2017. You and I were brainstorming what's going to be hot. This is the age of AI, machine, yeah. big data, things are happening. Put, you put out a new report, eight data decisions trends to watch in 2018. Give right. Us some highlights of what people should be thinking about as we sure. enter this world of AI and, and data driven. And I had to, to work at race speed, you know, up till three yeah. in the morning and get that report out in two days, man. Uh, you don't have a big button that like <laughs> <laughs> get it done button. Uh, no, I mean there's a lot of great trends in there. I, I'll, I'll I'll mention a few here. Uh, the first that I you know heard a lot of talk about in 2017 and even in 2016 was the move from uh, data science to sort of like a handcrafted experience, moving out of that into more of an industrialized automated experience. So the idea is we want to have predictive capabilities. Uh, insights, uh, forward-looking uh, decision-making everywhere, not just in these pockets they've been, like in lending or claims or these places uh, where they've been forever. And we were eking out just minute little in, in, uh, improvements in, in processes in these areas. Instead, we want to have lots of good models everywhere. So, you know, 10 good models or 100 good models is much better than having one or two models that you keep eking out that much more performance. And technology-wise, that means a lot of move towards a more automated approach to, to modeling and decision-making. And so we saw a lot of announcements around tooling and things, automation of, of machine learning, for example, uh, in the last year, and we're going to see a lot more this year. Uh, another thing I think we're going to see emerge in 2018 is companies thinking a lot more about sort of build versus buy on things like machine learning and AI. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of machine learning and AI-powered applications coming out in the area of CRM and HR and soon ERP. Um, we've, we've seen frameworks and blueprints from systems integrators and some of the apps firms, these applications that are sort of 80% of the way there, and then you take it the rest of the way and customize it to your business. 
Uh, we see all the clouds, the public clouds, having collections of these uh, ready-to-use machine learning and AI services, machine learning, vision, voice, search, um, and your developers being able to sort of mix those into applications and then sort of the build your own approach, um, you know, using these frameworks, using robotic process automation. And I think firms are going to have to sort of sample all of the above and come to some decisions about how, how they're going to be taking advantage of these smart capabilities. Uh, because as some of these sort of off-the-shelf options get adopted, we're going to have some some saturation, we're gonna have, it's, it's no longer gonna be differentiating. So I've, I've talked to clients, one of our Supernova award winners, Danska Mank, they wanted to be able to do these things themselves. They wanted to bring things like TensorFlow expertise into their shop. And rather than buying off the shelf apps for things like fraud detection, being able to do it themselves and then apply that expertise elsewhere in their organization. We have a question uh, from our audience, um, and I don't know how much time you had, Doug, uh, looking at what was introduced at the Consumer Electronics Show. But again, this strong presence of robotics and, and AI and machine learning, uh, Alexa integrated into vehicles and voice commands and smart uh, home appliances and so on and so forth. Anything that, uh, you know, uh, that, that was, was interesting to you, uh, you know, watching the events, if you had an opportunity to watch the event, uh, at CES, and also Ray, uh, your input as well. Yeah, <clears throat> I haven't had follow, much time to follow CES so much, but I, I look at some of the, uh, you know, the the voice interaction capabilities, and they're kind of primitive. You know, question of these interactions with the likes of Alexa and Google Home and whatnot is sort of a question at a time. And um, I'll get to it. We'll, I think we'll talk about my other research report here. But, you know, in the enterprise context, you need to be able to, retain the context of some of these questions and have a dialogue. And that's, I think, where things like natural language uh, query and capabilities are going. And that's a part of my research. And then, you know, you face a lot more sophisticated decisioning environment. One of the trends I talked about in that uh, eight trends in 2018, uh, actually this was Ray's on this infinite ambient orchestration idea he's talking about. That's a fancy name. I kind of disagree with him on whether people are gonna actually call it that. You could call it pervasive analytics. Uh, I think uh, uh, Ray was talking about it as, think of it as next best offer. But the basic idea is that, you know, in enterprise, you have decisions all over the place. And uh, it's not quite the simple consumer environment you see. Uh, very different, much more complex and demanding. You know, hey, on your CES question, Vala, I know you've been following, I think you're like the number two trending person on CES. It's like pretty funny. I was like watching, I'm getting all my CES t uh, feeds from you. But, uh, you know, so, so the thing that was going on at CES was everybody realized that, hey, wait, we're in the data business, right? Mm -hmm. That data gives me a demand signal. The data tells me are people using the feature. That data is actually helping you figure out preferences. That data is helping me figure out, actually, do I have a customer or not? And so people have gone from products to services. They're taking the insights from those services and using it to monetize, whether it's uh, you know, consumer preference or customer satisfaction or you know, next best mm -hmm. product or whatever the next action is or just mining that data to see if I can actually get it added in there. Like, all that stuff is happening and people suddenly realize, oh my God, I need computing at the edge. I need computing here. Got to bring that data in, those chips. I got to connect to things. 5G's on the way. So everybody's getting really excited about AI and, the, and it's not just about the concept of AI. They actually can see a path to monetizing AI and that's sure. the part that's most interesting. Sure. Now let's, yeah, debate, let's, let's, debate the, let's debate the name for a sec before we move <laughs> on to the next. 
Um, I like ambient orchestration because in the context of the enterprise, orchestrating sales, service, marketing, IT, customers, partners, channel, community, and having that happen in a, in a fluid flow-like motion um, using the channels of preference and that can vary by stakeholder. So ambient orchestration, I get. And when we talked about you know, the future of connectivity where Peter Schwartz told us you know, the last two decades was connecting living you know, humans to, to, to each other and the next two decades will be connecting things that we make and, and, and that's anything uh, from your refrigerator to your, to your clothes, to your sneakers, to whatever, uh, to, 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 to the net. Um, I feel there's even stronger emphasis for ambient or, or orchestration. What about the word infinite? Why the infinite? Is it, is it pointing to the scale at which you need to orchestrate? And you're, not, you're not talking thousands. You're not talking billions and trillions. What's the, what's, what's the infinite part? I, I think uh, uh, Ray's spin on that was uh, the processes uh, never begin and they never end. I'm more focused on they never end, these decisions never end. The data keeps coming. It's an infinite loop. You know, you have the full life cycle of a customer. It could be the lifetime of a customer, you know, spanning decades. Right. And you're constantly uh, having the life cycle of that customer evolve. So that to me is the infinite. These decision loops are infinite. Yeah, okay, now I like the word infinite. <laughs> it's also very situational, right? Yeah. right? These are with processes that don't begin or end, and if they never end, right? These things are, I mean, the deliveries basically in microservices to get there. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I yeah, I, I just associate orchestration with, with development and services. And I think of SOA and Sienna. Uh, that's the word I kind of like. Uh, but it appeals kind of, to both, right? The technical yeah. side of the house and also to the business folks who are now trying to orchestrate yeah. mess that's happening there and trying right. to actually simplify things uh, in that process. Hey, Doug, you wrote this wonderful report that's like on fire right now. It is on fire. Build versus buy machine learning and AI and what's going on there. Um, can you talk about machine learning and AI? Why is it changing BI analytics as we get yeah. this BI analytics topic in this segment? Yeah, uh, the title was actually machine learning and uh, how machine learning and artificial intelligence will change BI and analytics. And it is on fire. I've had, uh, uh, did a blog this week. I went on ZDNet and had a storm of tweets, more than 50 downloads in two days of our, our excerpt of that report. Um, and, you know, basically it's already started to happen. We're seeing machine learning and AI uh, creeping into BI and analytics. We've seen it in self-service data prep. Vendors like Hexada and Trifacta using machine learning to suggest uh, data that you should combine and, and look at. We've seen it in data exploration, suggesting uh, data that might fit what you're looking at or what question you're trying to ask, uh, uh, suggesting which types of uh, visualizations you should try to, to uh, understand uh, some of your analyses. We're, we've seen it in sort of uh, the beginnings of self-service prediction, where that automation is behind the scenes and automatically suggesting some predictions uh, to some uh, factor you're looking at. Uh, I described a little bit the natural language query. That's been around in some BI products for a number of years. It's been kind of primitive. It's been based on keyword searching um, and, and keywords at the top of sort of uh, database headers. Um, now it's getting more nuanced with these uh, uh, advanced natural language processing. So it understands the context of, uh, of sentences that you might type into a query in interface or even have a mobile 
uh, interaction have the text to, the voice to text translated into text and then analyzed, uh, where it understands more of the context and retains the context of the initial query. So instead of just having a question at a time where you have to build the context of the question into it, it understands your first query and then you can ask another query and it'll drill down into the data and you can um, have something more like, you know, the Star Trek Enterprise sort of interaction with a computer. Um, it's early days for that, but that's where, where it's going. And then, um, you know, we're seeing some of these uh, prescriptive apps, you know, um, BI kind of ex uh, came about as a separate thing because computing power wasn't uh, strong enough and they were afraid of mucking up with the performance of a mission critical system. So they separated that out years ago. Today, people are talking about, hey, you know, the compute power today is such that we can have the analytics right in the same mission critical transactional environment. So there's this blurring of the lines and this idea uh, uh, that, you know, we don't have to go off into a separate analytical interface like a report or a dashboard. We can have an, an analytic buried right within that transactional application or better yet, we can automate. Uh, earlier you were talking about the myths of AI not replacing humans, but there's lots of cases where AI should replace humans. There are decisions when we get to real time, which is another one of the trends I talked about in my uh, 2018 report. When we get to real time, there's no time for human interaction or interpretation. You can't go off to a report or a dashboard. You have to act. So uh, I think that's been the direction with, uh, with embedded analytics that people have talked about. Uh, not enough of that has happened. Uh, because it's kind of bespoke, you have to build it. Yeah. Uh, but you do see it in these prescriptive analytical applications where the context is known. It's CRM or it's HR. We want a we want a recruit for this particular job title so we can automate what it is. Or we want a lead. Or we want uh, who's next uh, most likely uh, customer to close on the pipeline. So when we have that context, then we can give recommendations or better yet, if there's confidence, automate what we should do sure when we talk to fred and he's talking about self-driving enterprise applications it, it, it suggests it's not the, the the stakeholder doesn't want insights and predictions they want recommendations and suggested actions that's exactly what i'm yeah that's exactly what i'm saying um you know we had this bifurcation and it was kind of unnatural uh, people became dependent on having these reports and it just became a uh, a, a practice that you know they'd have these pixel perfect reports and doesn't anybody really look at them I mean uh, we've had the limits of, of BI uh, talked about that was one of the impetuses for the self-service movement hey even the most successful B, BI deployments are only getting to 10% of the workforce the knowledge workers we need to democratize this well <laughs> do you really need to democratize it if really the mass of business users they don't really, uh, in many cases, you can say that the business user doesn't really want to go off to a report or a dashboard or even, even an embedded analytic. They just want to know what to do to maximize a business decision. So, so let's apply this right now to the world of analysts. When companies hire you today, what percentage of time is it insights and predictions versus you telling them, I want you to do A, B, and C and do it now because X, Y, and Z? Will this well, I, I guess no sector, no industry is, is susceptible to disruption when it comes to AI and- I oh, even see the Constellation bot, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
But before you do that, Alexa, turn off all the lights. Alexa. <laughs> so if your lights have gone out, I'm so sorry. But anyways, we get, but, but you, that's the thing, right? I mean, how do we get to that? And then I think it's, it's really being access to tons of data, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to be able to put context around that data, trying to get that context around an information flow, right? And so in, in the business world, it's easy, right? It's pretty well defined, procure to pay, order to cash, insight to resolution, hire to retire, right? We got those, right? But when it comes to like human things, it's a little bit harder, right? Because we don't know what journey are you on? Are you right. the beginning of the journey? Which persona are you? What's happening? So in the business context, we're going to see more and more of that automation, as, as Doug is talking about. Because automating the recommendations. Yeah. And then, then all the errors of automating recommendations. Like, uh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. No, don't do that, right? Don't do it a million times that quickly, right? And so we're going to catch those. And, and those false positives actually make us better. All the exceptions to the rules, sure. then the nuance. And that's what we're trying to learn. And we're going to spend yeah. a lot of time learning nuance and the context behind the nuance, which is what time of day was that? Why did you do that? Who was here? What's the weather, right? Uh, what was yeah. standing? Right. And, and what was he mad? Was he angry? Was, was she there? Was it a woman? Was it a male? Was it, I mean, do I know? Was it a dog? Was it someone else? Right. So all those things are going to be captured and that's why people yeah. are saying capture all this data and get the context. Yeah. Well, I agree with Fred hundred percent when he said that, you know, the answer is not just a bunch more tools that, uh, and, and systems on top of the back ends that we have today. Um, I, I think what we're going to need is, um, all of the above. We're going to see uh, smarter BI and analytics, but we're also going to see more prescriptive applications and uh, some more machine learning and AI-driven uh, applications. We're going to see pushing the experiments of automating decisions, mm -hmm. and we're going to, yes, learn lessons, as, as Ray says, uh, when mistakes start happening and are, are the, the sort of the complexity of our contextual understanding of these decisions uh, increases and we're better able to deal with nuances and exceptions. I mean, the default mode will be where there's high confidence and strong understanding of the context of the decision, it will be automatable. Where there are doubt, that's where it's going to stay in the hands of humans. I agree, it's not going to displace humans, but I think there are going to be many instances where the simple AI that we have today, very specific tasks in very specific contexts will be something we can automate and let people deal with the nuance. Wow, we are here live with Doug Henschens, Vice President Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, author of a recent report, How Machine Learning and Artificial Intelligence Will Change BI and Analytics. He forgot to say forever, but uh, yeah. we probably ran out That's of room. That's a good one. What we yeah. do. You can follow him on Twitter at dhenschen. And thank you for being on the show. Welcome. Happy Friday, Doug. Thank, thank you. you. Happy New Have Year. Have a great weekend, folks. You as well. So we got some crazy announcements. It's January and Disrupt TV. We are filling guests in throughout the month and, and the next year. Um, we are looking, of course, for our usual category of folks, uh, startup CEOs, investors, VCs, uh, CXOs. We're willing to share what they're up to. Folks that really should be on our Business Transformation 150 list. And of course, people that are just passionate about what they do. Authors, investors, entrepreneurs. Uh, definitely be on the show. Uh, we're going to be trying our second year at Davos. We're going to be broadcasting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Friday. Um, and uh, so look for a special time. I believe it's going to be 5 p.m. CET. And I'm not sure what we're doing on the show on the 12th. 
uh, on the 19th next week. Um, we're gonna, we have a tentative on that. So if you're watching, just watch for the hold. And we've got some movements with some of our uh, guest schedules. Yes. Uh, yes. But I just wanted to let you know, uh, that's what's happening with our show. But definitely catch us 8 a.m., 11, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, Monday 22nd, Wednesday through Wednesday of 24th. Uh, Vala and I will be doing live coverage at Davos. Interesting guests popping up, talking about what's happening in the big picture. And also, you're going to be hearing some of Constellation's latest trends on Pesto, our futurist framework, which will be pre-announced on this show only. So That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. What yeah, else on your end? Next week, we have uh, Rhonda Batier, CTO at Estee Lauder. She's our guest. We have Brian Fanzo, who has been a repeat guest. He's an evangelist, speaker, and change agent. Uh, unfortunately, we had a scheduling conflict with Jim Fowler, CIO at GE. We're going to reschedule Jim. If you have a recommendation and you can beat Ray and I to it, uh, send, uh, send us your uh, you know, uh, guest recommendations using hashtag DisruptTV. If you do it early enough, maybe we can do an outreach and get your recommended guest on our show. Uh, and, and then again, the following week, it's going to be uh, on you know, feet on the street at Davos. Ray will be there live, and I will join him remotely, and we'll uh, have our uh, incredible thought leaders at Davos joining us and sharing their points of view for this year. So thank you for uh, being with us 2018. This is our, you know, we started in 2016, and, you know, by the end of this calendar year, we'll probably cross 300 guests on Disrupt TV. And uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Ray, closing remarks. No, hey, we'll see you there. Happy Friday, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.